You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Hello, and welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm Mark Grizzly, Managing Director of Dynamic Funds, and today I'm joined by Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager, David Fingold, to get his take on the markets, fund positioning, and where he sees opportunities going forward. With over 30 years of business and investment experience, David has been a key member of the Dynamic Investment Team since joining the firm back in 2002. During his career, he has held senior positions in corporate finance, sales, marketing, and across industries that include manufacturing, transportation, distribution, and of course, investment management. Extensive travel professionally and personally has fostered David's interest in foreign markets and helped develop his ability to effectively navigate cultural, economic, and political differences. He is currently lead portfolio manager for a number of global and US strategies. It's our pleasure to have David here today. David, thanks very much for joining us. Well, Mark, thank you for having me on. So let's start by asking a, a fairly broad question, which is from a portfolio management perspective, how do you incorporate an unprecedented macroeconomic event or even a non-economic event like a pandemic into your investment process? I'm very reluctant to use words like unprecedented. Uh, we've lived through a number of pandemics in our lives. We've lived through a number of wars. We've lived through a number of financial crises. These things do happen. I think it's important uh, for anybody who is serious about investing to have a sense of history. Uh, I think of the words of uh, George Santayana, those uh, who do not study history are condemned to repeat it. Uh, but unfortunately, I also think of the words of Warren Buffett, uh, who said the one thing we've learned from history is nobody learns from history. Uh, Buffett was being, I think, funny when he said it, but it does challenge us to have a sense of the history and to act appropriately. One thing that I would say is a built-in feature of the way how we invest is our conservatism. Uh, we focus on quality. Uh, we invest in companies with strong balance sheets, strong profitability, consistent profitability. Uh, by definition, those companies uh, are, uh, are well protected from macro events when they take place. And well protected simply means that they'll do better than their peers and they'll have the ability to take advantage of any of the difficulties their peers face. So we think that that prepositions us for uh, things that could happen. Because uh, when the uh, allegedly unprecedented happens, it can happen really quickly. And it helps if you're prepositioned by being conservative. Well, we saw no shortage of volatility when this pandemic started. And uh, respecting your dislike of that word unprecedented, um, you know, this clearly reached global proportions from the virus's perspective. If we look back to early March, uh, that was where it was at its most extreme. We've now seen the U.S. and global equity markets move off of the lows that they hit back in March. One of the questions we get pretty consistently right now is whether or not we're entering a new bull market or are we just experiencing the signs of a bear market rally? I'll tell you that's something that's actually very difficult to know because technically we're not in a new bull market until the market establishes a new high above the high uh, before the bear market started. 
but I do believe there's a very strong, uh, a very strong uh, possibility that a new bull market is about to start and that we are about to move up to uh, record levels on the averages. Uh, and the reason why I say it is uh, simply because we now know that there was a recession uh, that began at the end of the month of February. Uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, which is the only body that has the authority to determine if there was a recession, has determined that there was a recession. They have also said it may be the shortest recession uh, ever, uh, and that means that if it's uh, shorter than the six-month recession that took place in the early 1980s, uh, that it is likely to end on August 31st. And we also know that when we're moving into the second half of a recession and proceeding into a recovery, that the stock market tends to do well. So I think it's important for people to be optimistic because that's what history tells us is going to happen. In fact, uh, if I were to be pessimistic and say that the recovery we get is the shortest expansion ever, then we would have a 12-month expansion that lasted until August of next year. Now, I have no idea how long the expansion will be. We will deal with August of next year when we get the information that suggests what's going to happen in the near future as the first and second quarters of next year um, uh, you know, show us their high-frequency economic numbers and how they are uh, developing. But I think it's important for those who are pessimistic to understand that your pessimism may have been uh, well-placed in March, but it's not well-placed today, and that one should be optimistic, I think, at least until uh, the uh, back half of next year. And I guess the only risk I would uh, give to that forecast is what if there is an exogenous shock? Uh, for instance, what if there were another Gulf War? Uh, and uh, all I can say to that is that's why it helps that we're conservative. It helps that when something unexpected uh, happens that we are well positioned for it. You know, a question we get a lot from investors right now, David, and, and it's a valid one, is how can we be talking about such, you know, dire scenarios within the economy, but it seems like the market is, is really rolling. A point you've been emphasizing is that the market is not the economy and the economy is not the market. Why is that so important for investors to understand and recognize that point? Yeah, I think that this is the one thing that I think that a lot of uh, investors have a lot of trouble understanding. And uh, I find it strange that they have trouble understanding it uh, simply because the stock market, first of all, only represents uh, public companies. It doesn't represent private companies. And a lot of the companies that have been hurt the most by uh, social distancing or by uh, the bans on travel, the reluctance of consumers to leave their homes where they're nesting. A lot of the businesses that have been most severely exposed to that are private companies, particularly in the service sector. If you look at the uh, investable universe of public companies, it's really dominated by companies that are broadly recession-proof or recession-resistant. You know, healthcare is a very large industry. Uh, technology is a large industry that is uh, very central to a lot of our life experience. Uh, in the case of technology, a lot of it is based upon cloud computing, which is inherently very secure, very stable, and very reliable. Uh, most of the problem has been with uh, businesses that had to shut their premises, and th there's just a simple fact that those businesses do not represent a lot of market cap. Given your comments that you need to be optimistic right now, also the fact that you're constantly looking for opportunities, 
in your opinion, why do you think it's important to construct your portfolios to look different than an index? And in this case, I'm referring to an actively managed portfolio construction methodology, which is what you employ specifically in this environment. And I guess a second question that we're getting quite often is, is index investing dead? Look, I don't think index investing is dead. It's it's a very popular uh, strategy. Uh, it is not a strategy that I agree with. Uh, there's no way that I would invest any of my own money that way. Uh, I think that as most listeners know, the way that I've invested my personal account is through the funds that I manage. So I'm a believer in active management. Uh, but I also have two eyes and I can see the movement uh, towards index funds. I think the part of the reason why you get the movement towards index funds is because closet indexing has really made the uh, job of the financial advisor in finding an active manager more difficult. And some have capitulated and instead of getting an index fund with an actively managed price, which is what a closet index fund does, uh, they've gone straight to the index fund. Uh, we would hope that advisors would replace the closet index fund with a fund that is truly actively managed, which is something I pride myself on doing. So I think that there's an opportunity for us, but we're all adults here. I understand some people will choose passive because it's a fair amount of work to find a true active manager. Uh, and we believe through our research that we can show that 75% of the mandates available to Canadian residents are closet index funds, you know, in that their active share is uh, 60 or lower. Uh, ours are considerably higher. So when you're in a situation where three quarters of the managers really can't beat their benchmarks in the long term, I can see why some people got pessimistic and chose passive. I would recommend just do a little bit more work, uh, talk to your dynamic wholesaler, We've got some active choices for you, and we have a high level of disclosure, so you can monitor whether or not we're really active. You can see my active share. Uh, you can see effectively the whole portfolio every quarter because I don't think we have uh, much more than 25 companies in any portfolio, so we're easy to manage. So what about the current circumstances that I think would you know argues uh, uh, for active? And the answer is simple. Um, an active manager, the, the most profound thing the, an active manager can do is to zero weight businesses that are doing poorly. So we had a, a negative view towards several industries at the start of this year and we had zero weighted them. And, and we are still zero weight and that includes energy, it includes utilities, it includes real estate. Uh, we haven't uh, owned anything in those industries uh, for a very long time. Uh, we used to own a lot of them. Uh, you can go back and look at our historical portfolios and see that when we liked them, we owned a lot of them. But there were material adverse changes, so we exited those industries and we haven't gone back. And just the fact that we zero-weighted the industries that have been the most destructive of value uh, in the last few years, not just the last six months, uh, we saved clients a lot of money. and. Uh, the investments in those industries did not detract from the profits we were able to make in companies we like. Now, the closet indexer may have seen the same thing we saw. They may have been underweighted energy, underweighted utilities, uh, underweighted real estate, but that's hardly the point. Those underweight positions lost money, and the zero-weight position was clearly the right choice, and that is the power of active uh, versus passive and versus the closet indexer. 
that everything that is in my portfolio is something I believe in and I want to own, and there are no underweight positions and things I disagree with. If I disagree, it's a zero weight. The correct amount of an asset you don't like to own is none. Well, then let's talk about three of your funds in particular, given your comments on active management and, and what you like to own. Uh, with respect to the Dynamic Global Dividend Fund, Dynamic Global Asset Allocation Fund, and your Dynamic American Fund, could you discuss and walk us through how they are currently positioned? Right. So let's start with the two low to moderate risk funds, uh, the Global Asset Allocation Fund and the Global Dividend Fund. And I would remind everybody that when I say a fund is low to moderate risk, that's not my opinion. Uh, the regulator requires that our 10-year standard deviation of returns would be between 6 and 11% in order to be low to moderate risk. Now, I can't promise to remain within that range, but I can promise to work my damnedest to uh, remain within that range. So unsurprisingly, when volatility picked up at the end of February, we had to reduce our equity exposure there. Uh, there's really no way that we can stay within low to moderate risk unless we're willing to raise cash when bad things are happening. Uh, we made the decision at the end of March that the economy was beginning to stabilize and ultimately would heal itself and put the cash to work. So we had been as high as over 30% cash in the global dividend fund, for instance. We had been as low as below 50% equities in global asset allocation. And as the world repaired itself, we put our cash to work. And as of the last time I checked, we were 5% cash in the global dividend fund, which is our mass, uh, uh, maximum fully invested position. We always keep a little bit of dry powder. And we're nearly 70% equities in the global asset allocation fund, which is near the top end of our range. I don't believe I've been much over 73 or 74% equities. When we talk about the American fund, the American fund is a moderate risk fund. Uh, that means that it can have a standard deviation of returns that is higher than the low to moderate risk funds. Uh, and that gives me a little bit more latitude to take some extra risk. Uh, that fund uh, only reached about 20% cash at the time that the global dividend fund was at 30% uh, cash. And uh, it has been fully invested uh, for several months now since the same time the global asset allocation fund was taken over 50% uh, equities and the global dividend fund was taken down uh, to its maximum fully invested position, which is 95% equities. So David, to give our listeners a sense of the type of companies that you invest in and specifically companies you've held for a longer period of time, could you maybe give us an example or discuss what you've looked for in those companies when you selected them for inclusion in your portfolios? Yeah, I'd like to talk about a company called Hoya, and I know that I uh, frequently talk about it when I'm on television or I'm talking to advisors or I'm doing these podcasts, but we have owned it uh, almost continuously for the last eight or nine years, uh, and it has many of the attributes of a company uh, we look for, uh, so I think it's good to talk about. Uh, Hoya's expertise is working with glass. Uh, anyone on the phone who's a photography buff probably had a Hoya filter on their lens. Uh, but their expertise in glass also extends to very high-tech applications of glass, and that includes the photolithography masks that are used uh, for uh, semiconductor production, that is the photolithography to produce the wafer. Uh, it includes glass hard disk platters, and if you switch a hard disk from an aluminum to a glass platter, you can increase the storage capacity of the hard disk by about 30%. Uh, they're also the second largest producer in the world of endoscopes. 
Uh, and as you know, minimally invasive uh, surgery uh, is a uh, growing trend. And they're the second largest producer in the world of eyeglass lenses and uh, the low-cost producer. This is a company that has a very strong balance sheet, that has uh, very strong margins, a very strong return on invested capital and free cash generation. Uh, they have very good capital allocation. Uh, when they have had businesses that were unable to grow, they sold the businesses or they closed them. They only invested their capital into businesses with uh, prospects for growth and where they have a right to win. Uh, the most resilient businesses in the current environment, surprisingly, has been technology. Uh, the drive towards 5G and uh, uh, 5 nanometer, uh, uh, you know, the movement towards more powerful chips, whether they be 7 nanometers, uh, 5 nanometers, has really driven their technology businesses. And surprisingly, it's been the healthcare businesses that have had difficulty this year. Uh, with social distancing and lockdowns, people haven't been able to go to the optician. So there's a lot of pent-up demand, uh, you know, for people who may need uh, new eyeglasses because I don't know anyone whose vision is getting better. And as you know, many hospitals have been closed and it's been very difficult uh, to sell endoscopes. But as the economy opens up, we see a fair amount of pent-up demand there. So it's a good example from the viewpoint that it's a company that combines uh, very resilient elements and also elements that will benefit from an improving economy. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people have asked, is there a change in business in, in Japan? And, and I will tell you, nothing's ever changed at Hoya. They have had a, a, a policy of returning capital to, to shareholders for a very long time. It was one of the principles of the founder of the company. The shareholders are his partners. And over time, they, you know, if it makes sense, they should buy back stock. They should steadily grow their dividend. They, they should treat investors like partners and also communicate with them. So I think that, you know, as a company that has run a solid business model for 40 or 50 years and being a long-term holding of ours, I think it's a good example of how we like to invest. We talked about a bit about the volatility that we've seen in the marketplace since, you know, late February, early March. If we think about risk management and how you utilize tools and strategies to, to address risk management within your portfolios, have you done anything differently? from that perspective in your mandates since those those lows of March? Well, the answer to that is, is no. I mean, as a generalization, the only time we change our process is when we find that part of it is deficient. Uh, so look, I'm capable of making a mistake. If I make a mistake, I identify it, I correct it, I learn from it, and I don't repeat it. Uh, you know, we haven't seen uh, any surprises this year as far as uh, how our process worked. Uh, it worked as it expected. Uh, I think the, the most important thing that, that uh, you know, we need to keep in mind, and, and for whatever reason other people don't talk enough about, is, is quality. Uh, you know, I think we've had encouraging results, and I'm, uh, I'm very proud of risk management, and I'll talk more openly about the risk management. The fact that our companies are high quality, that is, even if you look at a completely independent measure of our company's quality, like the S&P quality scores, or you look at ESG scores, say from MSCI, which show other aspects of the quality of the business, uh, what you'll see is that uh, our portfolio is what we say it is. It is high quality. And when volatility picked up, quality outperformed. It, it always has, at least as far back as we have uh, records of this. 
And I just ask of my competitors, if you had a very difficult march and you told your clients uh, you were a quality investor, uh, perhaps you should go back and look at your portfolio and see if your measures of quality really objectively showed that these were quality businesses. Uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, Savio Supermanian, who's the chief strategist of Merrill Lynch, downloads all the holdings of all the mutual funds available to U.S. residents every quarter and looks at the quality of the portfolios. And consistently every quarter, active managers are systematically overweight, low-quality issues. Uh, so I don't know whether or not it's conscious or subconscious that there is a failure to communicate the quality of the portfolio by most portfolio managers uh, to their clients and to the marketplace. Uh, when we say we own a high-quality portfolio, uh, we're not joking. And uh, you know, ask your wholesaler if you want to hear more about these quality uh, metrics. So, David, when we talk about assessing risk in your portfolios, you've often talked about the importance of looking at credit markets. And I think a lot of investors may find it interesting that an equity manager like yourself is spending time looking at credit. Can you talk a little bit more about that part of portfolio management for us? Yeah, I've been puzzled that other people don't look at it uh, because uh, I was taught in finance class that equity is at the bottom of the capital stack. Uh, so simply put, I mean, if you had to explain that to a layman, it means that we have to be wiped out as equity holders before there's any risk to the banks, bondholders, or trade creditors of a company. So I feel that equity investors should do more credit work than anyone else because we have to sustain the first loss. Uh, so we do credit work on every company we invest in, and they must disclose to us all their sources and uses of cash. Uh, they must disclose to us all their covenants. And we won't invest unless we see that they can uh, service their obligations. Uh, look, we have a, a record of, uh, of avoiding uh, credit traps. Uh, we also have a, a strong record where when people refuse to answer our questions, it turned out later they had something to hide. Uh, I tend to feel that uh, people have nothing to hide will uh, speak pretty openly. Uh, so that's on the single security level. On the overall portfolio level, we have to consider uh, fixed income markets. Uh, first of all, the rates markets have a, a tremendous influence on what will perform or not perform within stock markets. Uh, lower interest rates, for instance, are bad for banks and insurance. I think that everybody knows that. Uh, similarly, credit markets usually give an indication of where there's trouble uh, within the economy. Uh, we could definitely see from the way that energy credit has been evolving that the uh, creditors were very concerned about the energy sector. Uh, you know, we can also see in the repair that has taken place since the bottom in March that the areas that were most severely affected, like travel and retail uh, and energy, have all stabilized, albeit at, at higher levels. But the credit markets uh, at least were telling us that these were not overhangs on uh, the broad availability of credit. Uh, within the market. Uh, you know, I actually have a grand theory of everything, which is that volatility is created by a lack of credit. Uh, and at some times in the past, we've actually shown people the 100-year uh, chart of the Moody's BAA corporate bond uh, versus the 10-year U.S. Treasury, and you can actually see that it widens out as volatility picks up. So it makes a lot of sense to be monitoring that series, uh, at least uh, to be thinking about, you know, when one's antenna should be up, when one should be becoming more defensive, 
because it's never good for the economy when less credit is available. But again, I'll say to everybody who's pessimistic today, you need to understand considerably more credit is available in the economy today than it was in March. Uh, so it makes perfect sense for the economy to grow, at least for the 12 months that we can see forward into the future, uh, using a model based upon rates and credit spreads. Well, that's a great perspective on that view of credit from a portfolio management perspective. You know, another area that gets a lot of attention, especially in periods of volatility, is the conversation around gold. Can you talk a little bit about from the management of risk view in your portfolios, um, how and if you use gold and what your current position is? Yeah, it's a good question uh, because we had an interesting journey this year when it uh, came to gold. Uh, I saw some uh, good indications during the month of March that gold was beginning to trade as a hedge asset. That is an asset with a negative correlation to equities. And when you, can, when you can find an asset with a negative correlation to equities, it's very valuable. Uh, up to that point, the only one that we had was uh, short-term U.S. Treasury bills. Uh, they are the uh, sole fixed income component within the Global Asset Allocation Fund. And the U.S. dollar has gone up in every correction since 1970. So they were providing a good hedge to the equities within the Asset Allocation Fund. And we were encouraged to see some signs that gold was acting that way, so we took a position. Uh, I think that uh, at one point we were up to about 5% gold bullion in the Global Dividend Fund and about 4% uh, gold bullion in the Global Asset Allocation Fund. And I was uh, watching their performance every day for about a month and a half, and uh, the hedge attributes had disappeared, basically. Gold was going up on days the stock market went up and down on days the stock market went down. And then I said, damn, it's become a risk asset. So then it's just like anything else. And then I had to say, well, is it one of my 25 best ideas? And the answer was no, so I sold it. So I'm disappointed that we owned gold for under 90 days, but unless it's one of my 25 best ideas, uh, or it can at least have a negative correlation to the securities we already own. Uh, it didn't have utility for me within the portfolio, uh, so we moved away from it. So the, I think the takeaways are important. I mean, we look at everything in a very emotionless basis. Uh, we're very open-minded. We're constantly testing our hypotheses. And if something isn't fit for purpose, we won't own it. David, as long as I've known you, you've always been fond of a particular expression, and that expression is that you have to be an optimist because you've never met a rich pessimist. I think that uh, going back to your earlier comments around optimism, uh, I'd like to ask you what you would want to say to investors about investing in today's climate and meeting their long-term investment goals, especially during the situation we find ourselves in now. Well, first of all, I think that everybody uh, needs to establish what their long-term investment goals are and what their risk tolerance is, and this is uh, obviously where uh, the true expertise lies in the hands of financial advisors. And once the client's uh, uh, risk tolerance and uh, timeframes have been determined, I think there are few alternatives uh, to the equity markets. Uh, in the long term, uh, it's very hard to find an asset uh, class that has the attributes of equity uh, for long-term investing. So what I'd say is that uh, if you're conservative and you're optimistic, 
Then if something bad happens, in the worst case scenario, you pick yourself up, brush yourself off, and uh, move on. Uh, it's only those that are taking undue risks who need to be worried about volatility and about short-term considerations in investing. And that's why I'm so proud to be focused uh, on being a conservative investor. And as far as my long-term optimism is concerned, uh, I don't know what the arguments uh, are about this. I mean, if you think the world's going to come to an end, I can't help you. You need to uh, you need to consult a psychiatrist, a clergyman, or a bartender. But if you think that the uh, world is not going to come to an end, then you need to be optimistic about where we are going. There are tremendous innovations being made in technology and in healthcare that are that are stemming from the insights into biology and into physics and into chemistry uh, that our scientific community are constantly uh, developing. And they, they have significantly improved our lives, not only over our lifespans, but certainly over the lifespans of our parents and our grandparents. Uh, and there are companies that are at the forefront of this that you can benefit from. Uh, and as an active manager, I'm very free to find companies perhaps that you may not have heard of uh, that are benefiting from these trends, perhaps are even pushing the forefront of, of innovation. Uh, so when I look at what's going on in the world, it's very, very difficult for me to be pessimistic. You know, I'm able to be pessimistic. I, I mentioned earlier that we were at 30% cash during the month of March. That is being pessimistic. But pessimism only pays off in the short term. In the long term, optimism pays off. So David Goodman would always say to me, when you raise cash, you have to be right twice because you have to put the cash to work. I'd say it a little bit differently in this case, which is you, you may need to be pessimistic in the short term, but you always have to be thinking about how to get back to being optimistic. Because if you can't, as I suggested, please consult a psychiatrist, a clergyman, or a bartender. Well, David, that's a great way to end off. And this has been a very insightful discussion. I want to thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you for having me on. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this edition of On the Money with Dynamic Funds. Until next time, I'm Mark Brisley, and we'd like you to remember, in times like these, financial advice matters more than ever. You've been listening to another edition of On the Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. 
commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.